All right, so we're going to be making a little shift here in John. We're going to be going to chapter 13. So that means we finished up in 12 last week if you weren't here. And this is a pretty popular um, section of text when Jesus is washing the feet of his disciples. Uh, so there's a kind of the first part. I want to kind of broke it into two different sections if you see in your notes there. First part where obviously we're going to look at Christ because that's what we always do in Scripture is we look for Christ. And then the second part we're going to look at the application of that in our lives as believers. So as we go through, I want to share a little bit with you about what's happening here in chapter 13 because it is making a shift. So from chapters 1 through chapter 12, um, as John's portraying here, the focus has been on the rejection of Jesus in the nation that he's walking. Um, it would be more of his you know, public side of his ministry. If we look back to John 1.11, he says, He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. So that's basically where the focus has been from chapters 1 through 12. And then when we go from 13 here to 16 and then 17, he focuses on those who have received him. And we see that also in the next verse in John 1.12. It says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And like what it says right there, he says he gave us the right to become children of God. Because remember, what we deserved outside of Christ is death. But in Christ, we have the right to become the children of God. And that's just powerful when you see the shift of who we were, the reality we were, and then once you put God in there and what Christ did for us on the cross, we now have the, we have the ability to become children of God. So there's a shift, his public ministry and now to his private ministry. Um, 13 through 17 is also just is the night before Jesus' betrayal and arrest. So 13 to 17, a lot of things happen real quick leading up to the crucifixion of Christ. And really when I, when I was reading through and I was looking at the timelines and you see at this point, the cross, the reality of the cross is one day away from Jesus. And he, you know, he, he, we go through this in the first part of the text here, but I mean, put yourself in that situation knowing that in one day that you, you know what this is about to take place and the reality of this crucifixion is, is ensuing and is taking place and you've got all of this, the emotion, because what you know, Scripture tells us he was fully God as well as he was fully man. It also tells us that he was able to to sympathize with us because of what, he walked this earth as a man. So here he is in this moment here. And then what I find probably, not necessarily more interesting, but additionally, this text is, is written in a very simple language through this section here. It's not, it's not this, really you've got to try to dig in and understand some of the words. It's, it's put in here for us very plain. So we're going to read through it. It's a lengthy little section, but I want us to see it in its full context So we're going to read all 20 verses, so hang in there with me. And it says, Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour has come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And during supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper, He laid aside his outer garment, and taking a towel, he tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. 
And he came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him and said, What I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. But now when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If, if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also do as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. And if you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. I am not speaking of all of you, and I know whom I have chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So that's a powerful section of text there that we're seeing. And as you see, the title of tonight's message is Jesus, the Humble Servant. And that leads us to our first point, that Jesus perfectly modeled humble service. Jesus perfectly humbled, modeled, uh, excuse me, modeled humble service. So it starts off right there. It's before the feast the Passover. So he's there with his disciples, and they're celebrating that. Obviously, it's a little bit ahead of time, obviously in preparation for his death that's going to be coming. But, you know, the significance there is obviously of the Passover. We know it's a celebration back from the Old Testament when they, when they spread the blood over the doorpost, and this is a continual thing that was, of course, a foreshadowing of Christ. And now the reality of the Passover is about to take place for real. Because remember, at the same time that Jesus is going to be being slaughtered in the town, all of the lambs are being slaughtered at the same time for the feast of Passover. So just to paint you this picture, this is what's going around. This is a big deal in Jewish culture. So it says, now before the feast of the Passover. So they're there gathered. It says, and when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to his father. So the first thing we see there is this, this reference back to the perfect timing, remember? Remember through, all, through, first, through chapters 1 through 12, how many times we've heard about his time has not yet come and the time has not been there. But what we see right here, finally we see that he knew that his hour had come. And not only is it just any hour, it is the perfect hour that has come whenever Christ, when before the foundations of the earth, we knew that this was going to take place, that Christ was going to be the substitution for our sin. Verse, the first part of verse 1 says, Jesus knew that his hour had come. I think about time, and we think, you know, we, our lives are so dependent upon time, being here at a certain time, being there at a certain time. But when you look at it in this area here, when it says that, it's the, that his hour had come, man, it's just a reality that takes place of what that hour has come really means, right? But looking back on, throughout the text where it talked about the other times when his time had come in 2-4, when he was at the wedding of Cana, right? When he was ready to perform his first miracle, he, still, he told Mary his time had not yet come. So that was a, his, he was, it was a loon that it wasn't there yet. In 7.30, it's in the Feast of Booths, and they're looking to arrest him because, remember, he healed a man on the Sabbath. 
And then, of course, he shows them in comparison that they're, that they're willing to break the law, but, but not see it in him. There was this hypocrisy in the Pharisees. But he said he escaped. His time had gotten it come. In 820, when he has a discussion about being the light of the world, once again, he escapes. His time had not yet come. But there's a shift when he gets into chapter 12, because in 1223, which would have been last week, it says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. So we begin to see the process changing here at the end of 12, rolling into 13. And in 1227, it says, I have come to this hour. So now we see it shifting from him ducking and getting away because his time had yet not come. And brings us all the way here to 13.1, where it says that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father. The timing was absolutely perfect. Not only was the timing perfect, but we see that his love was perfect. Because when you look at the second part of that verse, it says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. And when he says he loves them to the end, that's speaking to a perfection. That's not just the end of the line, although it is, but it speaks of the perfection of the saving work of the cross on what was about to take place, that his love was going to be perfected in what he was going to do there, in his death and his burial and his resurrection. And then as he moves through verse 2, he says, During supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas, and as you notice as we read there, he makes four different allusions to Judas, right? And he's in, obviously at the time when that took place, they didn't know this was going on, but John's telling this, obviously, after the fact of what Judas's place was there. But as it goes here in 3 and 4, it says, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God. But the reality is, is before he goes back to God, it's his crucifixion. But I like what it says right here in verse 4. And it kind of shifts the text here, and it says that he rose from supper that he rose from supper. So he's there lounged, and he rises up. And you see it, and he's, he's showing us this model of humble service. And I was looking at that, and I said, you know, I said, that's where we find ourselves so many times, in a place where we need, to, we need to rise up from our level of comfort and get into a position of service and ability to be humble before other people. Because remember, when you're laid back and kicked back, what is your first tendency, to jump up or to go to sleep? usually, right? It's to get more relaxed when we get in that state. But I see there, and I believe that's something far as that he rose from supper. And my sub-point here is that his humble service was, was, cult, was contrary to culture. Because it says here that he rose from supper. He lays aside his outer garments and taking a towel, he ties it around his waist and he begins this process of washing their feet. And he poured the water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And then, of course, he comes to Simon Peter. But before we go any further, I want to look at this idea of foot washing. Any of you wash your feet, wash other people's feet? Pretty much handle your own. If you wash them, if you're like my kids, you don't probably wash them at all, other than what you splash around in in the water. But in that day, it was their culture, obviously, for the washing of feet. It was a, it was a necessity. You know, they didn't have the nice shoes we have, obviously. They had sandals. And I was talking to my kids about this the other day when we were we were kind of talking about the text a little bit, and I was, you know, we were talking about dirty feet and so forth, and I said, you know, I said, well, God, I said, tell me why, you know, other than that they had sandals, you know, what else was on the ground that they had to contend with, you know, outside of us? You know, they didn't have nice paved roads and carpet. Of course, you know, they all come, dirt comes to mind, you know, and I say, okay, and I'm trying to get the next level of gross out of them on what's in the streets, and they just weren't taking the bait, you know. I was like, you know, well, there's animals 
walking around on all these streets and stuff as well, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, yeah, the, so there's probably food, you know. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, but what happens after, you know? So I finally get to them to the point, obviously, you know, roads have a different level of nasty. You know, your cars don't have the same emission problems that your horse does, right? Right? It's different. It's different. So, you know, we see this on their toes because they don't have shoes like us. So that was a struggle then. Feet needed to be washed more regularly. And there would have been a basin outside of the door of most of homes at that time. There would have been a basin with some water. And the idea is that you cleaned your feet before you went into the house. How many of you lived in a house where you had to leave your shoes at the door? Right? That's right. A lot of you, right? I think I was probably supposed to do that. Was that a rule, Mom? It depends on where I had been. See? It matters. If I had been in the cow pasture, I probably should have left them at the door. Um, yeah, shoes are, um, shoes are a bone of contention in our family a lot. They get always in the way. So they would wash their feet. This basin would have been there. But the thing is, is in that society, it wouldn't have been you wash your own feet typically or somebody was, or you, a friend. What it would have been, it would have been the lowliest of household servants. That would have been their job. Because it was more than just, obviously, basic dumping of water. There was obviously a washing, and, of course, your responsibility was to wipe all that nastiness off and then in turn dry, and then you could proceed into the house. So foot washing was a big deal, and it really would have been a very rare occasion that a peer or someone would have engaged in that with you unless it was an, an opportunity that they wanted to show some deep expression of love for you. But for the most part, it was just a very mundane task that was done by the lowliest of servants, you know, back to talking about my kids' feet, because they've got two each. And, you know, one of the things they like is to get their toes cracked. You ever get your toes cracked? You could be honest with me. I'm going to share some things with you about the Corns family here. <laughs> so I grew up in a household where we, you know, we played with each other's feet. And what I mean by that is a massage or um, it was just a thing. I don't know why. I found out later in life that it's gross. Uh, to most people, but just in all reality, it's what we did, right? But the rule was you had to have bathed feet. You know, there was bathed feet, and if you ever popped it out of your shoe and rolled off your sock, it was no dice for you. You were not getting your feet messed with, unless there was a real expression of love that needed to be professed, right? Which I never experienced in that moment. So now with my kids, I have the same rule. You know, we sit down and it's, uh, you know, and it's, you know, crack my toes, whatever, which I don't have a problem with doing any of that, but they've got to be clean. So I understand the reality of a clean toe, right? You don't want to be messing with that. So it was the same thing here in, in Bible times. They needed clean feet just to walk about and obviously to... So Jesus is bringing himself to a place different than what they would have expected. But what's interesting is right before Jesus does this, now it doesn't show it here in John, but if we look back in the, in the Gospel of Luke twenty two twenty four, it says a dispute also arose among them, as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. So that's what's going on there. That's what they're arguing about. Which one of them is the greatest? And in that moment while they're arguing about who's the greatest, what does it say that Jesus rose up from supper and begins to take off his outer garments? Here they are probably wondering what is he doing because they're trying to figure out who's the greatest. And he's about to, sh- he's about to show them the most humble act of service that anyone could have shown them in that time. And he interrupts their selfishness which is humble service, right there in an instant. And the reason why is is because his message was clear. His message was clear. We look in Mark 10, 45, he says, For even the Son of Man came 
not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And right here, within one day, that is the very thing that he will be doing. He's going to be giving his life for many. For you and I are sitting here today who weren't even a consideration but before the foundations of the earth, knowing that this was going to take place. It starts there in verse 8. It says, Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. You shall never wash my feet. Right? Don't we just see Peter, you know, literally all through the text. You know, he's the closest probably here of actually putting his foot in his mouth. At least we're talking about feet. And he says, no, you're not going to do that for me. And what Jesus, and what is Jesus saying? He says, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. And then what does Peter say? You shall never wash my feet. He goes, I not wash you. You have no share with me. And then Simon Peter says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. He's ready for a bath, right? He goes from one extreme to the other. Don't touch me to bathe everything. Right here, just, just in this message here. But look, what, look what's going on here. Because Jesus explains that he must do this. And all in the words he uses is for that we must have share with me. So in the natural, we see just a very humble service, an expression of love for his disciples. That's the natural thing that's happened place. But spiritually, where there's an illusion there is the, is the salvation, the washing that comes from Christ and only Christ in our life. And that's what Jesus is speaking to him there, that if you want to have your share with me, then I need to wash you and you need to be washed clean of your sins. So he's beginning to show this comparison and contrast and paralleling what's happening here. Then he moves into verse 9 and Simon, of course, says, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. So then Peter, of course, takes it up a notch there. And then Jesus explains to him that you don't, you don't need to necessarily be bathed. You just need to be washed. And the natural thing is there is the only thing that was really dirty on him in that moment was the fact they needed to wash your feet. You know, they probably had bathed, had, you know, it's the end of the day, things have kind of winded down, but their feet were still dirty because they had to get there. So he's saying, you still need to wash your feet, but everything else is fine. That was in the natural. But then he takes it up once again, he takes it up another notch. When you look at the spiritual, he says, the cleaning that Christ does at salvation, and this is important, never needs to be redone again. So he's, he's alluding to what I'm about to do for you in one day, when I'm at my death, my burial, and my resurrection, that's going to be once and for all. And for all time, Christ is going to be crucified, and your sins will be atoned for. But, but he says, and he, and he circles back this idea of still needing to wash our feet, because as, once we come to know Christ and we're walking in belief, as we've, been learned, as we've learned about, there's this process of sanctification that takes place. From the moment of justification, we are then sanctified, and, and then we are glorified. But throughout that entire process, we still need this washing that only comes by God and by the Word of God in our lives on a daily basis. Our feet still need to be washed, even though we have been made whole and we have been made clean. God's Word is what does that in our life. And we went to this conference this weekend that you heard about, and one of the leaders there had a saying that he said over and over again, and he says this to his church over and over again. He's a pastor there, and he says, he says that until you, we, we study the Word and we practice the Word until it gets into us. We get into the Word until the Word gets into us. You know, the beauty of that quote is, is that process never stops. As we get into God's word and his word gets into us, then we just continue. And it's, it's back and forth for the, for the entirety of our life. And the process of sanctification just continues to work. 
We continually get into the Word, and that's how we're washed, and that's how we're made clean. It's a continual, continual process. And then he says, do you understand what I have done for you? Do you understand what I have done for you? Go on to verse 12. And I want to read this section here just to kind of put it together. So he's just done this. He's done this act for him. He's emulated this humility. And then in verse 12, he says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, got back to his place of lounging, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? Because remember earlier, he said, you're not going to understand until later. You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do as I have done for you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. And I'm not speaking of all of you, and here's, he's, he's alluding back to Judas, because I know whom I've chosen, but the scripture will be fulfilled, and he who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. And I am telling you this now, before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one I send receives me, and whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. So he performs the act, and then he begins to explain this to him and lay out and show that this was an example for us as believers. And I like what it says here in verse 17. It says, if you know these things, if you know these things, and that's, that's alluding to who he was, then blessed are you if you do them. And I thought about that idea. When we know who Christ is and we're in the, in, in the act of service and humbly serving those around us, there should be a joy that comes with that with us, right? We should have a joyful obedience to God's word, to the desire to, the desire to serve one another. That it shouldn't just be something that we, ah, I got to do. I got to check my box of obligation of service today. But it should be with great joy that we desire to do so. And that brings us to the second point here. I want us to look at the fact that we are to hum- humbly serve just as Christ served. Remember he said he gave us an example. He gave us an example of what's taking place there in 13 through 20. And just a couple of verses that reference that, Galatians 5.13 says, For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Knowing that that would be our tendency. Ephesians 2.10, we studied this a few weeks back. It says, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good work. And what do we learn about workmanship? That is the perfection. That is a masterpiece that he's created, and that's what he's created in us. And it's not that we did anything. It's not anything special about us. It's the fact that his spirit is indwelling in, in us. It's what makes this amazing thing take place. It says, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in him. So I want us to look at four practical things of service for us as a church. Obviously, Christ laid this out for us. He showed us the reality of it. He showed us where we needed to be, what we needed to do, and he tells us to follow it. So four things here. One, a servant's heart sees a need and meets that need. A servant's heart sees a need and meets a need. You know, how many times have you been walking through life in different situations, and we're usually all very good at observing things around us, right? Observing problems that are happening. I remember years ago, and some of you may remember this story, Pastor Nate spoke it from the, from the pulpit here, and he had someone come up to him after church, and he said, Brother, now I, want to, I, need to, I need to let you know something. He says, okay, you know what it is. And he, says, he said, well, I, I don't know if it was a he or she. 
And I don't know what side of the building was on, so don't try and figure the person out, okay? But he says, I was noticing when I was leaving church that there was some trash on the ground by the uh, sidewalk. I was like, okay, right? Um, thank you. Uh, what trash did you throw it in kind of thing? He's like, um, he's like well, you know, did you throw it away? Or, you know, I don't know how the conversation exactly went. It was like, well, no, no, I just want to let you know so that somebody else could, somebody could, get, so could take care of that, whoever does that around here, right? That's a true story. Yeah, that's a true story. So if you see a need, you know, then take care of it, right? I mean, Christ gave us an example of humble service. You know, I, I, it's, you know when I walk by a piece of trash, I, I feel like it's staring at me. You know, I just, I got like, to turn my head. I'm like, I don't, man, I'm trying to get somewhere, you know. It's like, no, throw me away, you know. So it's like, you got to turn back, you got to pick up that piece of trash, you know. So I've, got, I've learned to look ahead for trash so I can detour my path. No, I'm joking. You know, but when you see a need, meet the need. Let your vision be your mission, right? We're looking for opportunities to serve. We're looking for opportunities to help people around us, right? We're not trying to, what does it say there? So that not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. That's what it said in Galatians, because that's what's going to happen. The freedom that we have in Christ is real, right? But if we don't focus it towards service and towards loving one another, then what do we do? We do stuff like that. So all of you are going to be thinking about it next time you see a piece of trash. That's for you. Second one is that a servant's heart does not believe that it's above certain tasks. Look, 1 Peter 4.10 says, As each has received a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's very grace. And the reason why I put that verse there is because we are all given different giftings. You know, but the thing is, if depending on what your gifting is, and you know, not to even give an example, but some of you feel like, Maybe the thing that you're gifted in or the thing you like is a, a subservient role, and it's not something that's really that important. But, you know, that's just, that's just not true. Because if it's a gifting from God, no matter what it is, then he gave that to you so that you could, so that you could interact with the body and do your part and have your place. We're not above any certain task. You know, I was, Rachel and I was talking about this months ago. I don't even remember what the conversation was. Um, but it was just the idea that, you know, sometimes... You know, the need might be that the trash needs to get thrown out, you know, or that a restroom needs to be cleaned, you know, or things that we just don't really want to do or something that requires you to work by yourself if you like being in a group of people or if you like to be by yourself working with a group of people. You know, it's not always the fact that it's what you like. It just means that we're called to serve. And some things you just may not like, but we do it for what reason? To bring glory to God. Third part here, a servant's heart does not seek praise and adoration from others. Of course, the famous verse we've all heard there in Matthew 6, 1, it says, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Actually, in men's meeting, we're, doing a, we're studying through 1 John, for those of you who have been there. And last month, we, talked to, we went through 1 John, first part of chapter 3, and it talks about a practice of sinning versus a practice of righteousness. And as believers, that we practice Righteousness is something that we, can, we begin to develop a habit for and we get better at it. But look what it says right here. If we're not careful when we're practicing our righteousness, if we're doing it just before others, what happens? That's your reward. That's what you're going to get. We need to be humble in our approach to our service. Fourth part here, a servant's heart understands that we are all part of the body of Christ. A servant's heart understands that we are all part of the body of Christ. And I want to read two sections for you here, one in 1 Corinthians and one in Romans. In 1 Corinthians 12, 14 through 20, 
It says, For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, Because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the, if the ear should say, Because I am not an ear, I do not belong to the body, and that would make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would we be, where would we be the sense of hearing? And if the whole body were an ear, where would we be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as he chose. And if we were a single member, where would the body be? And as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. And it repeats here in Romans twelve four. It says, for as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So it, it, you know, it breaks it down and actually puts it in this, this struggle between the eye and the ear. When I always read that one about the eye, I think about Monsters, Inc., you know, Mike Wachowski, right? You know, that's that guy right there. Of course, he does have legs. He's got some other parts, but he is one big eye. But think about that. You know, think about your, think about your, your lungs for a second. Do you wake every morning and say, Man, I'm so thankful I've got lungs, right? I'm so thankful I've got a pancreas, you know? We don't think about that stuff. It just goes about its business. It does its job. It doesn't ask for any help from anybody else. It just does what it's supposed to do. And although that's a little bit silly, that's exactly what Scripture's telling us here for us as every one of us in here as believers are members of the body. You know, some of you are a pancreas, right? You just got your job. Just do your job, right? Some of us are hands and feet, and we all have our part, but they're all important, I think about the appendix, though. I don't think there's any appendix in the, in the, in the body of Christ because that's really not needed, right? For all the nurses here, some of you don't even have one, and you even, it's no big deal. You just got a scar. So I don't think appendix, I, don't think, I think that's why they don't reference appendix in the Greek here. I totally made all that up. <laughs> but in Colossians 3, 20 through to 24, it says, Bond servants, obey in everything those... Who are your earthly masters, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord you'll receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there's no partiality. We are serving the Lord Jesus Christ. Take this back to the first part of that text. Here he is a day before his crucifixion. And what does he do? He humbly serves. You know, if, if somebody came to you and said right now, to by tomorrow, at some point tomorrow, you're going to be, not only are you going to die, but you're going to have a, a horrible death to get there. Yeah. What, are, how, what is our response? Probably not to wash the feet of those around us or to serve, right? Just being honest. But what, he, but what does Jesus tell you? He, he said, I did this to give you an example. Now, that's not to condemn you, but that's to encourage you because it's with all joy that we do this, not out of obligation. And we don't even do it because we are supposed to so much as we do it because we want to do what? We want to glorify God. Because remember what sin is. Sin is missing the mark, and it's missing the mark of, of God giving all the glory. So when we come full way to the other side, and wherever we righteously we obey and we serve, then we see what Christ has distributed for us here. And my prayer is just that, that that's where we are as a church always, that we are a church busy about service. You know, for those of you who know, we've, we've began our growth track series, 
And that's really what it does for us. It allows people to start coming into our church for a path to service. Not just because we need help, although it's obvious we need help, but we need people to help with the capacity because of what Christ has done in their life. You know, when we come through this series, we do it. We, the, first, the very first thing we talk about is we answer the question is, what is the gospel? The death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and what it did in your life, right? Isn't that what, isn't that what Paul says in Romans in verse 116? In 15, he says, I'm eager to preach the gospel. But then in 16, he says, he says, because of what it has done in his life, because of what Christ has done in his life, the power of the gospel. And then we talk about the power of of God's word, and that it is the inerrant word of God. And then we talk about the process of biblical sanctification, and that there's this idea that as we move through life, that God is working us, right? What does it say? We continue to need the washing of our feet to take place. But it happens through the word of God. And then we close out with spiritual service. And now where does Christ see you? Because once again, he told us here that he has given us this example in verse 15, for I have given you an example to be a servant, to be a humble leader in every area of your life. And my prayer for us is that we're, that's, that's where our church is and that's where our church will continue to go. And as each one of you here show up on a Wednesday, a Sunday, a life group, whatever the gathering it is that you are busy about trying to serve the people that are around you. We've got a saying in our house anytime, and I actually heard this from another friend of mine years ago when our kids get ready to leave for school or going to a friend's house. I walk up to them. Sometimes it's in their ear if we're by ourselves. I mean, if we're in a group, sometimes it's publicly. And I say, all right, buddy, you're leaving. You're going somewhere. I said, be a what? He says, be a servant. I said, be a what? He says, be a servant. Because that's what I want for my kids, that when they go into school and when they go to a friend's house and when they go to church, that they would be a servant. And that's the thing that's in their mind. I want them to be thinking about service and serving others. You know, we were here before church today, and I was it's just those moments where you begin to see those things pay off in your kid's life, and they say things like, you think he needs my help? And I'm like, of course he needs your help. I don't know if he needs his help or not. But the reality is, is that we are constantly seeking and looking for that in our lives, that we start as a child and we grow into adulthood. And at every area of our life, I think about, I think about Miss, Miss Eloise. And I mean, if you know anything about her, you know, she's just a servant in everything that she does. She makes some amazing cookies and pralines in her service, right? God has anointed her service in that candy that she provides. But she does it with great joy. And there's many of you here that, have the, that very, do that very same thing. And I would encourage you not only to be that person, but to recognize that in the people that are around you. And that we would encourage each other in that, and that we would exonerate people when they're in those moments. And we would lift that up and we would exhort them in that. And just, just preach service and humility. And why? So that the name of Christ would be exalted and would be lifted high. So that we wouldn't miss the mark of that, that we would hit the mark, and that mark would be bringing glory to Christ in everything that we do. God, I thank you for this time. God, we thank you for your word. God, it is so powerful. God, it is so good. God, it changes our hearts. God, it changes brokenness. Yet it moves in places that nothing else can move, Father. And God, I pray, God, as we study through this, as we studied on what it meant to be a humble servant, God, that we would leave here differently, God, in the way we came in. God, not because it's some good idea, not because it's some catchy thing, or not something that someone else is going to think is a good idea, but God, once again, that it would bring glory to the name of Christ. And God, that through that, your gospel would be advanced. 
And God, that as you're tugging on the hearts of people around here, Father, God, that they are seeing examples of godliness in every area. God, that they come across people, God, from Living Word Church, God, that are serving you, God, with humility. God, I pray, Father, for safety as we travel from here tonight. And we thank you for your word. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.